Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. This is episode 14 of Sprogcast, the one with all the sex. I'm Karen Hall and my co-presenter is, as always, the inimitable Mark Harris. Hi, Mark. Hi, Karen. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Uh, We've got lots to talk about, as well as an interview with Agony Aunt and social psychologist Petra Boynton. Is there anything else we need to tell them about, Karen? Um, we should mention our sponsor. Sprogcast is brought to you by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. What else? Facebook.com slash Sprogcast. Come and talk to us. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, yeah. And Sprogcast Live, our first live event. You're all invited. It's completely free. It's yeah. at Ephra Space in South London. We are asking people to um, book tickets, but you can do that through the um, Ephra Space link, which we will put again on the Facebook page. It's on 14th of July in the evening. We've got some brilliant speakers. We've got Natalie Meddings from Tell Me a Good Birth Story, Dr. Amy Brown, who's a researcher in breastfeeding and stuff, Rebecca Schiller from Birthrights, and our own Natalie Corden. Wow. And we'll be there. Yeah, you and me. We're going to be there. I'm, I'm excited. The, the closer we get to it, the more excited I'm getting. I gather we've actually already had some bookings as well. Ooh, and it'll be an opportunity for people to see Ephra Space. You know, I've been there yes. once when it was uh, just a little bit more than a building site, uh, but it was still looking good. It's going to be great on July the 14th for sure. I'm excited. Yeah, very. And I guess the shop will be open. People can buy books. Yeah. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to buy books? No, I'm particularly thrilled, uh, obviously, with all the guests, but having Rebecca Schiller there will be fantastic. Yes. So what's in the news? Well, I uh, was on the radio this week. Uh, I had an early morning phone call when uh, the Daily Mail published their uh, piece on the RCN's statement regarding abortion law. Right. So what was their statement? Well, the, the Daily Mail statement was, you know, the impression was thousands of midwives are up in arms because the RCM, is she the chief exec, Kathy Warwick? Yeah, I think so. I think she's the chief exec. Leslie Page is the uh, president. The chief exec had uh, given notice of an RCM statement paper. I, th- I think that's what it's referred to, in that the RCM were, were supporting the move to take the abortion law outside of criminal law, effectively. Uh, and, this, you know, the suggestion is that um, abortion at any gestation uh, should not be a criminal uh, offence, but should be uh, the decision should be taken in in kind of tandem with a discussion with medical staff, taking into consideration the woman's unique situation and and her well-being. So basically, it should be treated as any other healthcare decision. Well, yeah, there was a a case, um, and I know Natalie posted on broadcast i think the link to the case in question where a woman uh, aborted a baby herself at 24 plus weeks using some form of poison and was sent to prison for that and the rcm was was basically in line with the other organization is it the baps is it pregnancy advisory service bpas that's right and the daily mail were pointing out that kathy is also a senior member of that team and they were suggesting a there was a conflict of interest they were suggesting b that 
um, many, many midwives were up in arms. And there was a letter written to the RCM yeah. signed by midwives. And of course, you know, Kathy pointed out and the RCM pointed out that that their position really hasn't changed. They've always advocated the autonomy of a woman to make her own choice. And they just want it taken out of, you know, criminal legislation. And obviously the Daily Mail had its own take on it. If you read the Telegraph article, it was very, uh, certainly more measured and considered. Yeah. And we put the Telegraph article on the Facebook page, as well as the RCM statement. I, I went on the radio after someone who had very strong uh, convictions about when life began. You know, she was arguing very strongly. Uh, her position happened to be a Christian one. Uh, I, I guess there would be other uh, people of different religions who would take a similar view. And her view was life begins at conception. But legally, that's not the case anyway, is it? I made the point on the radio that, you know, legally the baby doesn't have rights uh, until it's existing external from the mother. I did make the point on the radio, of course, if you believe that life begins at conception, abortion becomes wrong at any stage. I think the uh, RCM got 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 bashed when their position was pretty coherent to me. Yeah, it makes complete sense it does, to me. It does to me. The autonomy of the woman to make her own decision should be paramount uh, at all times. She's the source of birthing power. She's the source of all choices, uh, all choices when it comes to her own body and her own life. This is what they say, isn't it? I'll read it. The RCM believes that if we are to be advocates for women, then we must advocate for choice on all aspects of their care. This is not about being for or against abortion. It's about being for women and respecting their choices about their bodies. I really like that. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the RCM supports conscientious objection, if that's the right word. So, you know, midwives that for, uh, you know, their own... Uh, reasons um, don't want to partake or be involved with uh, terminations or abortions whichever word we're using you know they support their right to to opt out and that hasn't changed because of their statement I'd like to use the word abortion I'd like to call it what it is and not be ashamed of it I'm with you on that when I was on the radio it's very difficult talking about something that will evoke such a visceral response in the community that's hearing what you say was there any response to you as a man talking about women's right to have an abortion no there wasn't no I was I was introduced as male midwife independent midwife I'd I'd like to think that my position on it is as woman-centred as I could possibly be. Well, yeah, and knowing you, I know that's the case, but there are going to be people out there who say, well, what right as a man to even comment on this? I probably haven't got any right, really, apart from the boundaries of my own experience and opinion. Yeah, though your experience of pregnancy and birth is very different to, let's call it, the vast majority of men. I would say so. Yeah, I, I humbly I would say so, but it filters through that knowing that at a very intuitive, deep level, birth is a mystery to me and uh, will remain a mystery to me, uh, as are women generally. <laughs> and I, I'm not being flippant. That's right, you know your place. <laughs> the, the moment I start looking upon birth as just the same old, same old, is the day I need to start to drive a bus. Yes. You know, it's always a it's always a, a majestic unfolding. It's always a mystery becoming apparent uh, for me. 
And when it stops being that, I need to do something else. So are we saying that Sprogcast is officially in support of the Royal College of Midwives being in support of the decriminalisation of abortion? Well, I am. And Good. you are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, without a doubt. It's an issue we've, we've not really discussed at all on Sprogcast since we're about the birth and the pregnancy. It almost seems to be something slightly outside of our remit, but I think it perhaps isn't. So maybe we'll talk about it sometime. I, I, I think, uh, you know, talking about uh, early gestational miscarriage, um, these are uh, abortion are all issues that I think we should consider including in our scheduling, Karen. I will add them to the list. What have you been reading? Who me? I've been well. Yeah. I've been reading, and I've, I posted the picture on the uh, the functions of orgasms by Michelle Adon. And this is because we want to talk about sex. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you know Michelle Adon places orgasm and sex at the centre of his understanding of birth unfolding. It, it's really at the centre of his understanding of the physiology involved in the context of us being mammals. Um, and of course, the book is called The Functions of the Orgasms, plural. And he, he talks about, you know, the sexual orgasm. He talks about um, the orgasmic process, uh, physiological process involved in birthing, the ladder of, of uh, orgasmic birth, if you like, that can be interrupted at any time. And then he talks about the orgasm of the milk letdown reflex. And puts that in the same category. And then he says something really quite radical is he links he links those orgasms to experience of transcendence. And he says that cultures gone by saw orgasms as a, a transcendent experience that lifted us out of the mundane. A very good book. Okay, so he's he's using the word orgasm quite loosely there, isn't he? Yeah, well, I guess he is. I mean, he makes the point that climax comes from the Latin for climbing a ladder or ladder. In the book, and he does it with, with some exactness, he goes through the physiology involved in sexual orgasm, in birthing, uh, focusing particularly on the... Uh, it's not the ejaculation reflex that midwives talk about at the second stage, is it? It's the ejection. Yes. I, I always say ejaculation. <laughs> Don't get those wrong. Well, it's, it's more appropriate. It, it, yeah, ejaculation. It? I think. It, well, maybe not then. <laughs> All right. The what's it called? The ejection reflex, or you know what I'm talking about. You're the midwife. I know. <laughs> People who are listening will know what I'm talking about. I'm good. They're all shouting it. They're all in their cars screaming it at the radio right now. He, he goes into the physiology and links them very clearly. And, you know, that's that saying, which I use a lot, which is orgasm and birth are one event separated by time, dates back yeah. to a, a much earlier period. Um, a woman whose name I'm searching for who coined that phrase. Her name was Helen uh, Helen Deutsch, who had the experience of giving birth and breastfeeding, considered sexual intercourse and giving birth as two phases of one process devoted, divided only by a time interval. Quoting, he says, just as the first act contains an element of the second, so the second is impregnated with pleasure mechanisms of the first. I even believe that the act of birth represents the pinnacle of sexual pleasure. Furthermore, according to her, breastfeeding is an act of sexual enjoyment at the heart of which the mammary glands plays the part of an erogenous zone. Wow. 
that's quite strong. It's very strong. I, 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 for me, the foundation of all the work I do preparing predominantly male partners for birth is rooted in an understanding that the physiology is so intimately linked to the to the intimacy of a woman releasing herself into orgasm that it, it, it's it's foundational because when a man has an insight about that link he starts making the jumps to oh my goodness well then environment is far more important than I imagined. Uh, Michelle O'Donnell makes the point that it's our neocortex you know the new kid on the block when it comes to our evolving physiology that's really interrupted our experiences of the orgasms of life. Do you know I do I do this exercise in the, the groups that I run and uh, I, I ask the participants to think about the kind of context that would be more likely in a general sense for her to release herself into orgasm. You know, after we get through the jokey bits, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, men almost universally say the same things. They say dim lights. They say warmth. They say a sense of trust. Some of them will say music, not always Barry White, but you get the idea. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's an intuitive understanding about the context that's more likely to create an environment where she can release herself to orgasm. And then when we make an application of that uh, to the birth environment, they they get it as an insight. I was flicking through Sheila Kitzinger's Birth and Sex, which I read um, a few years ago after I'd seen her speak. And you remember I didn't like her autobiography very no, much. No, I remember. But this I really loved. Yeah. It was so good on a kind of basic here's how birth works level. Yeah. It's great on the stuff about environment and hormones and things like that. And it's sort of the kind of book that I'd want to give people. But because it's about birth and sex, that's its title, it seems less accessible to me. It's something that I would necessarily give to people who had not yet had a baby yeah it's a shame in a way isn't it because it just seems a bit out there and actually if you open it's it not heavy and read it it isn't you know you it's not the karma sutra of birth is it absolutely That's not the point it's a brilliant book underread i'd say yeah um, the other thing about functions of orgasms now i i have deep respect for michelle adon right deep respect he's influenced me uh, profoundly through my early career and all the rest of it um but he writes in a style that has a little bit of absolutism about it yeah i think he does yeah no i come i, I come to similar conclusions uh, and i like what he says and i feel in accord with it but the way he says it makes me want to not like it <laughs> if i'm honest yeah i know what you mean so i've i have a question for yeah, you yeah go on do you think talking about orgasmic birth alienates people who aren't comfortable with that and that quite a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. I, I think it has the potential to, to, to alienate lots of people. Um, uh, and some, some of that's got to do with the cultural structures that we become accustomed to give birth in. Um, so our cultural structures are such that when women think and uh, couples think about birth, the idea of being orgasmic in a bright room with with an audience would be an anathema to what we've come to expect the environment will be like mm. so that's the first thing you know when you talk about being orgasmic at birth you know you know people think well i can't imagine that ever being a possibility within our yeah. cult cultural melee the other thing of course is there, are, there there is a percentage of women who, who wouldn't necessarily report it but but don't have a referencing experience for orgasm Mm -hmm. So it would alienate 
that group, however big it is or however small that group is. And then, yeah. of course, there's a whole that, that there is a group of women who have suffered abuse yeah. who will be alienated by it. So I, I think it should be a narrative that, that we're willing to d- discuss and talk about, because if, if Michelle Adant's close to the mark in terms of physiology, it p- potentially has 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 some real importance to our discussion about birth. I, I'm really on the fence about it. I think it's my kind of eternal worry of will people think I'm a bit bonkers if I say this? Yeah. And, and having to kind of get over that yeah. is one part of the challenge yeah. and say, actually, is it useful for me to say this anyway, even if people do think I'm a bit bonkers? Yeah. And also knowing that, you know, doing what we do, talking about what we talk about, you and me and all the other people who are listening to this probably, we're so far down the line of tolerance of difference and yeah. Um, behavior in in this context that we can say stuff that feels completely comfortable to us that is just miles out there for your average person who's only just starting to think about whether or not they want to be near the machines that go beep or tucked up at home having their baby no i get that certainly in the groups that i run when i introduce the idea of orgasm and birth being one event separated by time it is one of the the biggest shifts that i get in the program you know, when men see that and when men have an understanding about that, it does seem to to change their mind about quite a number of things. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about uh, letdown reflex as an orgasm either. No. And, and that, you know, is that something that's widely said? It's not something I've ever really considered. Well, there's uh, there certainly is uh, a, no- a growing number of women that report orgasming while breastfeeding. Yeah, and I'm not saying that isn't the case. I think that's that's part of the whole picture. But that to talk about that generally, when the entire nitty gritty of breastfeeding is is probably well, basically a lot more gritty than anything else. Nitty. <laughs> like, you know, they're they're getting on with the business of learning how to feed their babies, and somebody's prattling on no, about orgasm. I'd punch yeah, it. Yeah, no, I get it. I do get it. I, although I do think having the narrative and having a conversation and having this discussion that we're having now, you know, th- there will be women that that uh, have had an orgasm in the context of breastfeeding and and feel d- d- no freedom whatsoever to talk about that. Yeah, because of again cultural a cultural overlay that says that this isn't uh, appropriate yeah. for whatever reason that, that that's coming up for them. When yeah. when we if we were to understand that as part of our mammalian history, I, I think it would lead to maybe more freedom in women talking about the experience. Uh, but that's a world apart from championing it as the norm. Yeah. Yeah, I want the conversation to be out there. I just don't want to be it to be in people's faces. Yeah, I'm with you. Shall we listen to our interview? We've got Petra Boynton, agony aunt, social psychologist, and she has a lot to say, not so much about the birth, but more about the after afterbirth period. That's the wrong word. Not so much about the birth, but more about the postnatal period. My name is Petra and I'm an agony aunt. That's really cool. We've never had an agony aunt to talk to before. Right. So I think we're kind of a dying breed, actually, I'm sad to say. There's fewer and fewer of us left now in, in media. So it's a, a I guess that's because the, um, the forums and the peer support replace you. I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly that, that it's an expensive service. 
actually, to offer kind of, you know, uh, one-to-one feedback and care for a large readership is, is costly. So it's, it's partly, I think, groups have, have replaced advice giving, but it's also, I think, that the change in media has, has also made us uh, too costly for our own good. Hmm. And, and you're not, not just sort of uh, an, an old granny with lots of experience to offer. You've got a background in um, psychology? Yes, I'm a social psychologist and I've spent the last 15 or so years researching sex and relationships um, in sort of more of a global health context. And that work runs parallel with sort of offering advice through media. So that could be through public health campaigns or advice giving or just general quotes for, for media. So really well qualified to talk to us about sex and birth and pregnancy and relationships and stuff today. I hope so. You'll be testing me at the end of it to see. <laughs> well, I perhaps we'll issue a test for, yeah. for listeners. <laughs> um, so we were just chatting a, a few minutes ago about the six-week rule, and I thought that would be a good place to start. So it used to be that people were told that after six weeks you could have sex again. And that usually referred to if you'd had a, a, a fairly normal birth, whatever that might be, but certainly not a, a sort of any kind of medicalized birth. If it had all gone smoothly, if you felt OK, if you thought about contraception and if you actually wanted to have sex again, after six weeks you could probably do so. But the way that's been interpreted is that actually at six weeks you must start having sex again. And so people start feeling very anxious when either they don't feel like doing it or when their partner doesn't feel like doing it. They feel there's something wrong with them. They feel like they ought to be having sex uh, when they don't feel ready. And also there are those who actually have sex before six weeks who themselves also feel quite strange and abnormal for, for doing what they think is wrong. So the quick answer really is there is no rule and there is no right amount and this is not measured in time. It's measured in how you feel. Yes, indeed. And, and you know, measuring things just because we can measure them in time is never really very helpful in this context. I suppose that's part of the whole package of um, getting back to normal and six weeks, six to eight weeks to kind of emerge from the newborn fuzz of weirdness that you get when you first have a baby yeah and I think that's the interesting thing again about this sort of sense of getting back to normal when that implies you're getting back to what you were like before you had a child and this is is your new normal so it's going to be different and it's different whether you have one child or you have multiple children it's different whether you've got existing siblings or stepchildren it's going to be different depending on what your relationship was like before what you were like what your age is like what kind of family support you have there's so many different factors to take into account but it, it, instead of sort of thinking about getting back to because you can't go back you're kind of here now and it's new and it's all going to be changing from here on in it's about thinking almost about well going forward where do I want to be and what suits me and my partner and our family set up rather than thinking what actually is right and for those who aren't in partner relationship what suits me maybe thinking about dating uh, further down the line where does it come from the six weeks well I think the original six week deadline was a health one it was sort of suggested because I think it was really aimed at stopping people trying getting pregnant very quickly after being pregnant. I think that was the original idea for it. And it gave sort of space. It also coincided with the six week check. And I think that's where people can get confused that you usually go in at around six weeks or so just to check that you are OK, that baby's OK. And, and that's the point normally because you're kind of captive 
that if they haven't already given you the contraception talk, they'll give you the contraception talk. <laughs> and, and it's all basically designed to sort of think around what are your choices, what are your options. But some people, you know, find it very helpful and some people interpret it as, as some sort of instruction and others just find it really kind of bizarre because they're thinking, well, you know, I've still got a, you know, leaking every bit of my body and scars and sores and I can't even sit down without it stinging. And, you know, why are you, why are you even mentioning sex at the moment? It's, it's a weird thing. So it's, again, it really depends on what kind of birth you've had and your physical recovery and what you want to do. Absolutely. I find it bizarre that some third party should be giving me permission to have sex. Yeah. I mean, I always say, because it's interesting as a, as a, a so-called sex expert, that I have people ringing me and saying, well, what should you do? As if I have, you know, the great power to tell people, <laughs> well, well, this is what you should do. No, there's nobody who can actually tell you what to do in these circumstances. They can give you advice. They can give you information. They can tell you what lots of other people are doing and what might be helpful. Certainly, if you've got any real worries of, of sort of infection or, or some sort of of problem they can help you there but ultimately this is going to be something to negotiate between you and a partner and I think some people find that reassuring to know nobody else can tell you what to do other people find that quite intimidating and stressful because actually they do want somebody sometimes when you're in the middle of a crisis or uncertainty you actually do want to be told you know mm. let's do this this and this so actually saying work it out for yourself and what's best for you sometimes doesn't help then and and telling people in those situations what other people might do could be a good alternative. Suppose then there may also be, and I'm going to generalise and say women, who feel under pressure um, to be getting back into having a sex life, perhaps that their partner's expecting them to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one because it's it's always set up in that way. And I think it follows from a sort of general stereotype that, that you know, assuming here that partners are going to be men and, and yeah. you know, that, that there's this assumption that partners who are men are always sex crazed and they're going to want sex as much as possible. So if you look at a lot of pregnancy advice around sex, it's sort of suggesting that you've got to kind of keep him happy and uh, you may not really want to do it, but, you know, he's going to be up for it. But he should be sympathetic, but, you know, he's still going to be up for it. And after the baby again well you know you better get back in the saddle otherwise well you know you might lose him and that puts an enormous amount of pressure on people who are um, not really feeling like having sex very much it also puts pressure on those who are in same-sex relationships because it doesn't give them any help at all hmm. it completely ignores actually for a lot of male partners they don't actually feel like having sex right away because like you, they're probably sleep deprived. If it's your first, they're probably very anxious and not sure what to do. If it's your second, third or fourth, they're probably very busy because they're doing childcare. And also if you've had a very traumatic birth, they actually may have witnessed that in a very different way than you have. So it's very common actually for partners to have psychosexual problems, erection problems, uh, premature ejaculation, or just not wanting sex much. So I think one really helpful thing we can do is do away with this idea that actually after birth, women don't really want sex very much and men do. It's often the case that some people, regardless of gender, will feel like having sex and some people won't. And there will be a lot of reasons why you may or may not want it. It's interesting you picked up there on, on the potential birth trauma for partners. or Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky one because I think for a long while there was a, a kind of an unpleasant and almost misogynistic idea that, you know, if you'd seen your wife delivering a baby, you know, and her vagina expanding and a baby's head coming out, you'd never want to put your penis in there again, uh, which is a nonsense. I think that's never, ever stopped penises going back into vagina. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd all only have one child if that was the case. That there is a sense that, that you've got 
this almost sense of, of, of the body, a female body doing giving birth as distasteful or abhorrent, which isn't isn't particularly helpful. And this idea of just giving birth, putting you off is 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 often the butt of many a joke. But actually, I think most people, regardless of gender, would say that if their partners had a good birth and they've been part of it, it's it's been a great experience for them both. Yeah, that's very empowering. And, you know, the the body becomes so much more than what it was before. Absolutely. And you often hear partners talking in absolute awe of what they've seen happen and it being an incredibly emotional experience for them. Some people do want to have sex quite early after that as a kind of form of bonding experience, but a lot of people actually find it's not for them. And so over time, it may be they need some kind of debriefing or a counselling or just space to get back over it. But again, I think this pressure that we all have to have perfect births and spring back into our you know, tiny genes and have fantastic bodies and be having acrobatic sex within six weeks of everything happening is is so unhelpful because it's just not what most of us go through. That's very, very unrealistic. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where can people take this? What can they do? Well, I think it depends on, on what you want to do. I'm always a bit wary that, that you can almost make something into a bigger crisis than it needs to be by having kind of big talks and, and lots of angst-ridden discussions about it. I mean, for a lot of people, it fixes itself by itself. You know, it, if, it, if you acknowledge this amazing thing or this, this traumatic thing or this beautiful thing or this difficult thing or this just, you know, this thing that happened, you've had this baby uh, has occurred for you and that it's going to disrupt your life and you've got to learn how your life will be from here on in. Some people find in time, you know, stuff just changes and, and you find that, that you're back having sex and, and there's no need to think about it. Um, some people do like to talk about it and plan ahead. They probably want to also read all the baby books and be well prepared. I'm one of those people. Yeah. And and for them, it's helpful to talk about what's going on in advance. So some people during pregnancy like to sort of anticipate what they think will happen and make plans for it. And some people like to address it as, as the need arises. I mean, most often what tends to happen is that, that actually fairly soon after you've had a baby and then the months that follow, it's not something you're thinking about. Um, but then you sort of think, oh, actually, it's been six months and we haven't had sex. I can't remember the last time I shaved my legs and I can't remember the last time we kind of actually talked to each other apart from discussing babies and things like that. And for some people, it's like, fine, that's good. That's what it should be like. And other people it's like, mm, well, maybe we should have sex. But alongside that, there's also working out why you want to. So there's often the anxiety we already picked up on of, I think I should be doing this because everybody yeah. else's or if I don't my partner will leave me or I'm failing as a as a partner so noting what's driving it is it driving it because you're thinking actually I, I fancy it I really do I want to have sex again or is it because you feel you should is one really important I think step forward the second thing is to also think about and you can do this whether you're pregnant or at any point during you've, the time you've had a baby is is to start thinking what does sex actually mean when I when I say to people, what does sex mean? They, they usually look at me as if I've lost the plot and say, well, everybody knows what sex means. But actually, if you ask people in research what sex means, they don't always say the same thing. So normally we take it as code for penis in vagina sex. And when you're talking about getting back in the saddle and getting back into having sex, that's what you're really talking about. Mm. Talking about when are you going to have penis in vagina sex? When is your vagina going to be recovered enough from birth? to have that kind of sex again or if you've had a cesarean when's your uh, cesarean scar going to be recovered enough so that you can feel comfortable having sex again that 
is important for lots of people. There are lots of people who enjoy penetrative sex, be that with fingers or penis or sex toys. So, you know, I'm not going to start talking about the fact that you don't want to do it. But it does give you a very limited view of sex. If you think about broadening out instead of what sex is to think about what pleasure is, you can encompass all kinds of things. So it might be about massage. It might be about uh, talking to each other. It might be about eye contact or it might be kissing. It might be about brushing hair or sharing a bath. It might be about comfort and cuddles. It might be about talking to each other and how was your day and how are you feeling and I think you're doing a great job and how can I help you out. It might be about kindness. It might be about compassion. It might be about uh, talking about sex that you plan to have. It might be about holding each other while you're explore masturbation to see how your body feels it might be about taking things very slowly it might be about getting completely drunk and just trying it to see what happens I mean there's so many different ways that you might do it that if you think about it a, a good example I had was that, that we sort of used to talk about sex as a sort of a three-course meal so there was foreplay and then there was the main course which was intercourse and then there was dessert and I was never really sure what that was what's for. dessert I don't know <laughs> Anyway, it's a really that, that just shows such a lack of imagination on my part, doesn't it? Tedious example. So a better way to think about it is a meze, you know, <laughs> and you can eat as much as you like. Oh, yeah, well, eat as much as you like buffet. What do you want? And you can pick what you want and it will change every time. There might be a couple of core favourites you know you're always going to have on your plate. There might be something you think, oh, I've never had that before. I'll give it a go. And there might be something you try and think, oh, I'm never going to do that again. Um, but the idea of, of sort of thinking about it, that because there's such pressure to get back to having penis and vagina sex rather than thinking about what do I actually want? What feels nice? What feels good for this body at this time? And what feels good for my partner's body and what feels good for us both together rather than this assumption that what your partner wants is this and what you want is that and no one's going to even talk about it. And you can make this into something erotic. You can describe it. You can write it out for each other. You can make a bingo card if you want. If you, I don't mind what you do. Or it can be something you don't talk about and just try. Or it can be something that you have as a kind of conversation that's very fun and lighthearted. It can be, you can make the conversation about what you want to do into your in, into your own model rather than assuming again this has to be very serious or it has to be very sexy um, it could be something you talk about and don't do anything about for a while you know and it, it might even be that you say we haven't had sex for a while and that worries me um, and these are the things that are worrying me and please help me out and reassure me yeah definitely all about the communication but if you're kind of constantly then shoehorning in sex within this as a kind of checklist chore that you've got to do on top of everything else to be a perfect parent, mm. you know, it's, it saps the pleasure out of any of it. And I think a lot of people would rather say, look, actually, I'd rather not do it than do it grudgingly or do it because I feel I have to or do it yeah. because I feel afraid or, or, or unhappy or, or whatever. And did I read somewhere that you, uh, something you wrote where you described the phrase touched out as being a bit cringy it's a very physical job you know not just the 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 cuddling and the feeding and the holding but also the cleaning up and the all the endless laundry and everything else it's it's, it's physical labor and I think if you feel quite exhausted by that and then somebody else wants a piece of your time or your body mm. some people describe that as feeling touched out now sometimes they feel that they're touched out because they're exhausted by it and sometimes they're not exhausted by it sometimes they're perfectly satisfied They've actually had so much enjoyment and pleasure. 
Oh, yes, I can see it from that other side now. I've had enough. Yeah, and so that's, I think, where my, my frustration from the touched out comes is that it, it's always presented as a negative, that, oh, yeah. I, I can't bear anyone else touching me. Um, so if it's, you know, if your partner is grabbing you or you feel like your partner is grabbing at you when you've been grabbed all day by, by your children, it's understandably not necessarily going to be pleasant for you. But another way of looking at the touched out sort of description is actually that you have been, you've really enjoyed you know, the feeling of your baby on you or your children as you've cuddled or you've actually, you really enjoyed holding them or carrying them all day. And so actually for you, when it gets to the time when you're with your partner, it stops being an, an instinct where maybe in the past you'd have held hands or snuggled together. You aren't making that move anymore, either because you're very tired, both of you might be very tired, mm-hmm. or because actually you've done that. And so it's a tricky one, again, because the suggestion then seems to be that you've got to make space for everybody. Yeah. Oh, well, you must also make space. And you see some relationship advice on that, which I, I some people find helpful. I'm always a bit cautious about is this sort of idea that you, you know, not only must you look after your children, but you must also tend to the sexual needs of your spouse. And if you don't, you're failing. And, and there's quite a lot of advice there that sort of suggests, in fact, you should put your spouse above your children. You know, yeah, that- I can remember when I was pregnant being advised constantly that you must you must get out as a couple as soon as you can. This assumption that you must go out straight away on these regular date nights is, is I think, it works for some people, but other people find that worrying, again, and oppressive because they're not ready to go out or they just can't. You know, yeah. no budget or no time or no one to help you, then that's out of the question. Or it might be you do want to go out, but now your body's changed shape and you don't have anything to wear and you don't have the money to buy anything to wear or you don't feel confident. All of that adds to it. And then we've also got the flip side that many of us have seen that you have celebrities. There was one recently who dared to go out within a week or so of their baby being born. And everyone was horrendous to them about how very dare you. You should be at home, you know, nursing your child 24-7. So actually, you can't really win whatever it is you do. But I think whether it's somebody saying you must go on date nights or you mustn't, both of that's wrong. It's about what suits you. And again, what would you do if you were never really keen on going out on sort of set date nights, then, you know, don't start it now. But if you feel it would help to connect, you might find that you could do that by saying, well, look, tonight, we're just going to turn the TV off and have a chat about how we got on today. Or we're going to do something different. We might go for a walk this evening with the baby if it's a sunny evening and just have a walk together. And, you know, it might be you just find something to do where you can connect. There's also advice that suggests if you are having sort of any kind of date nights or connection times you mustn't speak about your children or your babies Mm. and some people find that really helpful because they actually say I want to connect and I want to feel like me again and I want to talk about myself I want to talk about other things and other people are like you know imagine if you just started a brand new job and you went out for a night with your partner and they said don't talk about your new job I don't want to hear it it's kind of like "Mm, that would be a bit odd if this is really important to you and you're enjoying it then you might want to talk about it. You know, for mm. some people, the, the, the whole family focus is, is, is really, really important to them. So, again, it's all about working out what works for you. You might want to read what other people are doing and try it, and that might work and it might not. And if it doesn't, that's because it doesn't work for you. It's not because you've done something wrong. I mean, the other thing I think to work out, again, is that date just as sex is the code word for penis and vagina sex, 
date night is nearly always the code word for I'll be getting some later. <laughs> I've paid for an expensive meal. <laughs> I've paid and all these sort of expectations I've paid for these things. And and it can work both ways. You know, I've paid for this thing, therefore you must have sex. Or I've got all ready and dressed up and now we must have sex. Or I've made the effort to come out of the house and so now we must have sex. It's not necessarily, again, this stereotype that it's the the partner who hasn't given birth who's driven this this sort of need for sex it can mm-hmm. be any either of you but I think there is still that sense that yes if you're going out on a date night you must do something else now it might be that your date night is going to bed really early and having a good sleep and that might be what you both really really need especially yeah. if you're sitting sleep deprived or it might be that you actually say we're going to go out and enjoy a night together and we know when we come home we're not going to have sex and that's the deal you know, rather than having that whole thing of sitting there through the meal thinking, I'm going to have to have sex now. Um, so it's this idea of creating spaces and time when, again, if we think about pleasure rather than sex, it might be that you've cuddled, it might be that you've kissed, it might be you had a quickie before you went out, it might be that you have sex early in the morning before the kids wake up because you both felt like it, or it might be because you do it in the evening, um, you know, and and just felt like doing it and and trying it. Now, I've also read advice that says things like, you know, when you get up to do the night feeds, schedule in your sex then. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) There will be people listening who are going, oh, yeah, busted. We've done that. Um, (laughs) But there will also be people thinking, dear God, no. That's me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you're already snarling at your partner uh, over the over the night feeds, you're not probably going to want to have sex. So, I mean, again, these are, are just ideas. They're not carved and stone things. And I think it's worth remembering that when it becomes prescriptive, it's a problem. But also that your schedules will often be completely out of kilter because you're now doing very different jobs. If if you remember back before you had children, both of you probably left the house at the same time or roundabout. You both probably worked around the same hours, probably thereabouts. You may have had a an equal amount of time for hobbies you may have spent time together doing stuff socially with friends socially you had a kind of calendar once you've had children that completely alters your friends who don't have kids are on a different time scale your friends who do have kids but have got more than one child are on a different time scale you and your partner will probably be working on different time scales so there'll be times when you feel like you're exhausted and times when they feel like they're exhausted there'll be times when you feel like you're up for it and times when they feel like they're up for it So the idea that you're always going to want it at the same time differs. Um, There's also the fact that even if both of you want it and you've got kids, that may not be suitable or feasible. You might be worried that they're going to wake up or they're going to come into the room or even if you want to do it, you've got to do the school run. So, you know, there's so many other factors to consider here and noting those as really good reasons why this is just a juggling act and it will calm down and you will find your path rather than, again, just thinking this sort of one track of we must fit in penis in vagina sex all the time is, is I think often helpful for people to recognize, yeah, we're all in the same boat. This is what's going on. How can we together work out something that suits us? And people have different ways. And that's where things like the date night comes in. It, it's more empowering, isn't it? To, to not have a rule. Absolutely. You must do this at this time. Yeah. I think it's again, reminding yourself that, that, you know, there are so many factors here. And if you almost certainly, some people find it helpful to draw it. If you drew, you don't have to be good at drawing, but a cartoon of it or just words in, in bubbles of, of, of all the things that have happened, what's going on in your life, who's helping you, who's not there to help you. There are some people who've got really good support networks and some people who don't. Can you afford to buy in help or not? Can you use friends and family or not? What can you do, you know, with your partner and helping each other? What things can you do to be 
kind together. Because I think with a lot of this, you're sleep deprived, as I said earlier, and you're anxious and you're nervous. And, and it's really hard to remember in this time when you are learning your way to bring in compassion and kindness. But if you can do that, and I think it's about learning together, a lot of the stresses and strains and problems around relationships are not actually about having enough sex. We think that's the case because that's what we're told, but it comes from exhaustion and fear and uncertainty and not communicating and resentment. When you're tired and stressed and anxious and then your partner wants to talk about sex, you know, you, you're not in the best place to hear that. No, you know, that's never a good time. No, it's not. You hear that as a complaint or a criticism or, oh, my God, I can't cope and now you're going to leave me, you know, or, yes, I knew you thought I was fat or, or whatever else it is that, that that's in your mind. So I think if it's about learning together and doing things and setting things in place, we, we talked at the beginning about sort of maintaining your sex life or planning to enjoy sex and pleasure after you've had a baby. But you can also do lots of stuff together that's nothing to do with sex that actually really does help your relationship and reduces resentment. And the interesting thing about this is is mostly around things like housework, looking after the children, even if you're, you know, one of you's out all day and one of you isn't. So a lot of people I hear from say rows spring up, not about necessarily the lack of sex, but the fact that your partner has asked for the 15th time where your three-year-old socks are and where the baby's nappies are kept, even though the baby is now six weeks old. And the row springs up because it's like, how can you not know this? You know, why yeah. am I the one? Why am I the one who's juggling everyone's timetable in my head? Why am I the one who has to know where all these things go? Why don't you know what temperature the wash goes on at? Why don't you know what food the kids like to eat for their tea? Why am I the one who's cooking at the end of the day? You know, all of these things are are are, are very toxic, I think. And there's no, nothing really about having children that really comes all that innately. We're told that it does, but a lot of it you do have to learn. Some of it's instinctive, but most of it isn't. And a lot of us now have not had a lot of experience around children. So this is actually something you both need to work out together. Quite often, it's the case that you often think you're doing more when you're doing more stuff you don't like. So if one of you really hates a chore and the other one doesn't mind it, can you do some sort of exchange? Can you put off doing stuff? You know, do you need to do all of this housework all of the time? Can you do stuff together? What's a way that works for you? Because, again, quite a lot of the advice that I see for the partner who's not had the baby or the partner who's working outside the home is if you help out with the chores, and that includes childcare, your reward is sex. And quite often that leads to even more resentment and fury. Yeah, because it's not helping out, it's doing. Doing, and it's what you should be doing. And it's it's about working out for each other what your schedule should be. You know, and I, I can't sit here and say what, what is, is right for everyone because everyone's, you know, preferences differ. And we can all, all work out things for each other. But I think if resentment is building up because you feel you are the one doing everything or remembering everything or, or you are the one who's tasked to do stuff, you know really both of you need to know how everything works yeah we're back to protecting the relationship being the more important really much more important and that's not about protecting the relationship by prioritizing one of your sexual needs above everything else it's about yeah. protecting the relationship in terms of a friendship and companionship and compassion and care and and respect and love and all of these things sound kind of really strange when you think about the way we normally talk about sort of you know 
buying sexy knickers and and candlelit you know suppers and all the rest of it I mean if you want to do those things as well that's fine but it's really hard to do those things when other stuff isn't working and it's the other stuff that tends to be the thing but we're getting better at talking about this and having parenting groups and things can help but it, it doesn't always help and, and sometimes I think partners don't know what to do with that information so it's about being there for each other but also finding other places you can go for help and coming back and saying just as you do with parenting you'll find as your children grow you know you don't always get it right and sometimes you have to say to your kids god I just messed that right up you know I did that completely wrong let's rewind let's start again yeah, I think that that's so interesting. There's just so much to say, isn't there? Yeah. Every time I, I talk about this, you know, um, people always come back with their own experiences or their own ideas and, and always a yes, but, which is good. I like yes, buts because they'll be like, well, yes, but you said this, but for us, this worked or this didn't work. So I think if people are listening and they've got their own observations or experiences or, or just questions they want to come back with and we can revisit this in a few months time or a few weeks time, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. That would be wonderful. Thank you. You. And is there any way people can um, find out more about your contact to you? Yes, if you want to get in touch, I'm at Dr. Petra, that's D-R-P-E-T-R-A on Twitter, um, or they can email me, which is info at drpetra.co.uk, that's D-R-P-E-T-R-A.co.uk, or um, I run a project that all of this is called, called From Bump to Grind, which is really about all the stages of being kind of pregnant or not staying pregnant or staying pregnant and what happens when you've had a baby and I mainly started doing that because I thought you know having kids myself and studying sex I'd be the super expert and suddenly discovered actually no I don't know anything this is really hard and when I looked for evidence I found it really difficult to find that was useful for me so for me this is an ongoing conversation and if people want to carry on asking questions or, or talking about it I'm in the process of writing a book about it at the moment so all of that's very useful to me to make sure I'm on the right track. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated talking to you. Take care. Bye. I really enjoyed that, Karen. I mm. thought it was a real balanced look at, you know, how relationships continue after the birth of a, of a baby because you know yeah. there, there's so much potential for friction yeah I liked that that was a real focus on how do you protect and maintain and grow your relationship um when it's grown like literally because you've now got a baby yeah. and what happens after that and also just taking out the rigid rigidity of um yeah. sort of rules around yeah I love the stuff about your date nights were all right, but she, she doesn't advocate them particularly as a rule because, you know, all of the stuff you have to organise around them. Yeah. You know, I thought that was I great. Date nights generally, up until probably a couple of years ago, and I'm talking 10 years now, right. were a bit of a pain in the ass. And somebody coming and saying, um, oh, I'll babysit while you go out, it, it doesn't, it's just not that simple. No, it's not. I thought she was measured and it was excellent. Well, I wanted to say a little bit more about you know how the, the the endocrine dance of the male of the species and the female of the species does seem to be different you know and I, I often say you know my girlfriend says to me do you want sex and I say let me think about it yes there isn't much distance between me thinking and deciding in terms of my you know my girlfriend it doesn't work that way with her it seems to be dependent upon her oxytocin levels you know 
she, her oxytocin levels need to be at a certain point before she's even inclined to to want to be intimate with me. Because I, I mean, speaking as a as a woman and as a girlfriend and as a mother, um, I had a strong inclination to agree with what Petra was saying about um, it's more about putting the bins out. Yeah. If if I am tired, yeah. then I don't care what part of the hormonal cycle I'm in. If I am tired, if I'm resentful because I've been doing all the housework, if I any any of that stuff, yeah. it's not going to happen. No way. No, I mean, this sounds silly in a way, or a bit, a bit strange, but, you know, me giving loving attention and focus and um, uh, kind of unedited time to my six-year-old son has an impact on my, my, my girlfriend's oxytocin levels and therefore <laughs> the likelihood of there being any sexual intimacy. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I see that that might be the case, but I don't like the idea that you, it, you the implication could be that you do things in order to get sex. No, no, I get that. No, I get that. And, and I'm not saying that you well, do, I, just well, I'm generally not, speaking. Karen, but the, the, <laughs> okay, the, so you might do that. That does make you a bad person, Mark. What's really going on inside us filters through in so many ways. So, you know, if I am giving attention to my son or putting the bins out or doing something, inverted commas, loving for my partner, but yet my motive is something else, I, I cannot not communicate my motive. That's what I'm saying. But equally, if, if you've spent that time with your son, which means that she perhaps didn't need to, and, and that's quite relaxing for her, that in itself could be the, the thing that helps. I guess what I'm saying, I, I see what you're saying in as much as, you know, doing this stuff just because you want sex is the anathema or the opposite of what we're talking about. Because yeah. it's not going to create an environment where her oxytocin is going to go up. No, it's going to create a sense yeah, of obligation. because she'll know. Uh, you know. And that that's basically not really consensual sex. I mean, I, th I think when it comes to consent, what you should be looking out for, what you should be holding out for is enthusiastic consent, not just, a, well, I suppose we should. No, then. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I'm suggesting that if if one was doing it for 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 sex alone, that that would communicate in some way. She mm. she would know, or or even he would know. I guess that that was going yeah, on. Yes, that's true. We we ought to perhaps consider that men get tired and tense. Yeah, too. yeah. And sometimes they need to be looked after. Poor things. <laughs> Yeah. So what what does everybody think? Do come and tell us. Facebook or Twitter are your friends and we'd love to hear from you and we'd like to know how you enjoy this episode. I'm just reviewing what we've had on Facebook lately. We've got um, a lovely comment from Fiona Cook who enjoyed episode 11, which was the one on twins. Um, and she commented that remaining positive and supportive is a simple skill. It should be taught in training for the NHS when learning about the risk. Mm. And Megan Stevenson, who I know... Um, says she finds us thought-provoking but also often entertaining to listen to your conversations on long car journeys. Um, I liked the often entertaining. <laughs> We've got some comments on Twitter as well. I think Sophie at Mum to Midwife, she's offered to transcribe some of the episodes for us. Yes, this was a suggestion from um, Nicole Hasty, who we interviewed um, for the attachment parenting episode and said um, wouldn't it be nice if we could um, transcribe them so that um, deaf people could listen that's fantastic deaf people could listen Karen yeah I heard myself yeah <laughs> shush read the next Twitter out. 
Melinda Morals at Lovebirth LLC. Just subscribe to your cast. Look forward to listening. Well, I hope you're still enjoying it. Now you've listened. Yeah. Linda, if you haven't been put off Get yet. in touch, will you? We had some words from Pinch and Martin to mention. So new books for June include the paperback edition of A Passion for Birth, which is Sheila Kitzinger's autobiography, which I lukewarmly recommended earlier, and a new edition of Penny Armstrong and Cheryl Feldman's A Midwife's Story. Um, I just received in the post yesterday a copy of Rosie Knowles, Why Baby Wearing Matters. Yeah, I got that too. Looking forward to reading that. Yep. And they also wanted us to mention their listening party every month on the 25th, um, which is when Sprogcast comes out. Um, they have it on in the shop. Oh, that's great. So you can sit and listen over a coffee. Brilliant. Have you got anything to endorse this month, Mark? I, I have. Is it the endorsement that I cut out of last month's episode? Yes, it is. Let's I, hope it makes it in this time. I want to recommend a book uh, by a chap called Andy Puddicom. His book's called The Headspace Guide to a Mindful Pregnancy. I discovered the Headspace app about three months ago, and it's basically an app that encourages you to have a daily practice of mindfulness. I've been doing it consistently now for, I think, three months, 15 minutes a day. Are you having a mindful pregnancy? No. It's the Headspace app that led me to his other writings. Uh, the Headspace app, you know, it's free to subscribe to, to to get to download. You get 10 free uh, practice sessions. And if you want to subscribe, it does cost money. Once you've subscribed, you do get the opportunity to do a mindful pregnancy program in there, which is 30 um, sessions long. But he's written a book called A Mindful Pregnancy. Back to the app itself, I've got to be honest, I've been pretty much drawn to some form of daily practice in terms of meditation for a long, long time. And this is the first time, really, that I, I've managed a daily practice consistently. Um, so, and it's, I, I am noticing the effects on, on my life generally, to be honest. What he's done is he's taken the things that he teaches about mindfulness and applied it to birth. Uh, it's available in book form. As I've said, it's also available on the app. Uh, but you can't get to it until you've done the foundation course and subscribe. But the book, I think, is about eight pounds and it's excellent. Yeah. It's, it's a great uh, introduction uh, to the benefits of how uh, mindful practice and some mindfulness uh, can be really helpful and supportive through the pregnancy and uh, the birthing process itself. Thoroughly recommend. Cool. That sounds good. I've put it on Facebook. Um, my recommendation is um, Emma Pickett's book, You've Got It In You, A Positive Guide to Breastfeeding, ah. which she sent me and I read it and I thought it was really nice. It's very positive. It's full of very accurate good information she is the, the chair of the association of breastfeeding mothers so i would expect no less of her um, loads and loads of signposting in it um i think that the book was originally meant to be an ebook and so a lot of the signposting is web links and i think they might go out of date and they looked a bit untidy but other than that just very very good source of information so this is currently the book i would give to a new mum because Heather Welford's wonderful book, Successful Infant Feeding, is out of print. Oh, and that's quite an endorsement for you, Karen. I mean, you are a breastfeeding specialist. And let's be honest, you are, in my experience, quite discerning about these matters. Picky, I think, is the word you're looking for. Very, very picky. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Excellent. I haven't got a copy, so I wouldn't mind a read of that. I, I, 
you know, I want to back that up by saying the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers, a brilliant organisation and um, doing a lot to support uh, breastfeeding women out there. Yeah. And that's all for this episode of Sprogcast. We hope you'll join us for the next one in which we're chatting about the politics of breastfeeding. And I'll be heading off to the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers Conference to get some interviews. That's not why we were just being so nice to them. No, it isn't, um, actually. I'd forgotten about that. Another one. You go to another one. I get around, don't I? You get all the conferences, Karen. You go to conferences. I know, but I'm usually speaking at them. Well, that's why you don't get to go to the ones when you're not. All right. I'm not complaining. You're speaking to them all. I'm not complaining. I think you'll you'll find us at facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening and goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harrison, Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. SPROGCAST is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.